and we're live. We are live from Rob's patio. All right, folks, we're just waiting for the seven o'clock cheer to get rolling. Should be in under two minutes now. If you are very acute of hearing, you may hear a bagpiper in the background, but it doesn't seem like my iPhone microphone is I good th enough. To I think it's probably that the Discord app is uh, muting what it thinks is background noise. Because <laughs> it is tweaked for, for voice, so it, it does try to get rid of what it thinks is background noise. Okay. Okay. Oh, and for those of you new to Vancouver, here is what you would see on a typical postcard of my city. <laughs> Skytrain going by Science World. Going by False Creek. And the cheer is getting started. Just here at distant, those are the buildings across the way. That was Olympic Village in the 2010 Winter Games. There's the horn. Here we go. We're getting started. Balconies are a little emptier than usual, but folks are starting to come out. That guy who looks like he's waving like the queen is not waving. That's actually a rattler that he brings out every night. Oh, sure. Got some drums down there by the water. My very civic-minded neighbors cheering at full force. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely trying to cut out the background noise, but every but because of the applauding nearby, we can it's it's uh, giving it to us, so it's coming through. And you might have heard it, but the uh, the nine o'clock gun is now the seven o'clock gun that went off from Stanley Park. Some fireworks in the background. <laughs> Yeah, with the applause off, we can't hear the background noise. Uh, I will, uh, okay. for the next time, we're going to, I'll have to look up how to turn off Discord's uh, noise suppression on your phone. I think that will fix it. I do know that Discord is, is really tweaked to be voice. It was originally created just to be uh, voice chat during video games. Well, I hope something's coming through. Yeah, something. It is. So when, when it gets loud enough, the, the mic turns on and then broadcasts everything. It's just every once in a while it cuts out and gets quiet because no, it's not loud enough. But yeah. All right. Why don't you come on in, Rob? Okay. We'll so get that was the show the started. Here from Rob's patio. Let's rejoin on our computer now. And all right. All right. 
We're good to go. Uh, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, thanks so much for joining us for this live viral transmissions. Uh, I'm Joe Fulgham. To my left is Torn Atkinson. Up above uh, there is Dr. Rob Tarswell. And our guest this evening is Dr. Ian Cromwell. Take it away, Rob. There he is. So there's been a lot of um, news this last week in particular about modeling and the whole question of modeling. And you and I had been discussing uh, coming coming on the show even a few weeks back uh, to discuss the idea of modeling. You've done a PhD in epidemiology. A big part of that is modeling. So I guess maybe as a kind of a lead in, what what is an epidemiological model? <clears throat> uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Um, there are so models are. Everyone has dealt with models. If you took a, a chemistry class in high school and you learned the like nucleus with the orbital around it thing, that is a model of what an atom looks like. It is an imperfect but useful proxy for mm. reality. That's what a model is. And there's a great saying in modeling that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Hmm. There, so this is we're we are taking something very complex, a very complex system, and we are boiling it down to what we think are the essential elements of whatever process, whatever phenomenon we're trying to make predictions or understand better. Um, and we make, we sort of, based on some research and some intuition and some experience, we sort of come down to a basic version of reality. This is, this is what our model is. And that's, that's true of all types of models. When we talk about epidemiological modeling, there's a, a number of different ones that um, come up. But in this, in this particular era, when people are talking about modeling, what they're usually talking about is infectious disease modeling. And in this particular case, what you are trying to do is sort of um, by predicting or describing the ways that individual elements or entities will interact with each other and with some underlying process, you can forecast how a from a, a given set of characteristics and with a different, a, a given amount of time or a given change in a factor, what is going to happen as these entities interact? Um, so for in, a lot of infectious disease modeling, and I do have to preface this by saying that I have almost no infectious disease modeling in my personal background. That's not the area that I work in. Um, but in most of those models, you're looking at um, trying to basically bootstrap a, a population of people um, by looking at them as, as, as individuals that can, that can interact. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, uh, looking over the past week, there's been, I think some of the, the things that I've seen coming up again and again, um, are our models capturing, uh, are they, are they sufficiently predictive? Uh, this model predicted this many deaths, but we only saw that many deaths, throw the model in the garbage. Um, the models uh, are showing us that maybe 10 times as many people are as infected as we have tested infected. No, the models are only showing twice as many people are as infected and so forth. So a lot of questions uh, and casting of doubt around the parameters of the models. Um, so could you, uh, to the degree that, that, that you wish, um, talk about sort of the, the limits of modeling, particularly in forecasting, particularly when we're using the model to try and influence present behavior so that the model actually becomes wrong. So 
this is this sort of hues a bit more closely to what my area of expertise actually is. I uh, my, the field that I work in is health economics, and this is about using uh, economic tools and assumptions to understand trade-offs and how people make decisions about health. And one of the things that that economists are basically one of the most important things that we do is deal with uh, a concept called uncertainty. Um, which is exactly what it sounds like. There's no like special like definition for just economists. So we're dealing with we're dealing with uncertainty, and there's a lot of different overlapping and interacting types of uncertainty. There are things there's like there's structural uncertainty. So have we included the proper number of parameters? Are they arranged and or do they relate in the right way? Um, there is statistical uncertainty, which is the param that you know that, that there are just some things about the universe that are random and unknowable there is error that exists and then there's something called parameter uncertainty which is that every point estimate if we say that you know there's a case fatality rate of 1.5 and i don't know i don't know 1.5% is is i think probably pretty close to some of the estimates that i've seen um but it's not exactly 1.5 it's 1.5 plus or minus some amount of statistical error. Mm -hmm. And so when you stack st structural uncertainty and statistical uncertainty and parameter uncertainty, you end up with what uh, some economists would call cascading uncertainties. Mm -hmm. It's turtles all the way down. And we just don't really know how, how precise our models can be. I had someone ask actually quite recently when I was talking about being on the show, they were asking about, you know, uh, you know, how come the models don't include this? And how come a model doesn't include this other thing? And we know that this is true about the world, aren't they factoring that in? And the more parameters that you add, the more uncertainty you add, almost by definition. Mm -hmm. And especially when you have parameters that are really, really poorly known. Um, you can't, uh, we, we, we don't know, for example, what the long-term survival of someone who's, who's been infected with COVID is because there's no such thing as long-term survival. This thing's only been around since December. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we yeah, don't, yeah. we have, we, there's a bunch of like really, really important things that should go into these models that we just don't know. And so we're making them, uh, we're making sort of educated guesses based on previous models. The fact that we went through uh, a, an earlier SARS outbreak in the early 2000s has turned out to be kind of a, not a godsend, because I, I re realize who our <laughs> audience is, um, but, but a, a, a sort of a, a lucky thing that happened. Um, doesn't, it didn't seem lucky at the time, but that we had a bit, uh, that we had some uh, predictive ability, yeah, some prior knowledge about how a coronavirus outbreaks behave. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we end up with is models that can give us the outside edges, and they can tell us it could be as bad as this, it could be as not bad as that, and the, as we get more information as the world becomes less uncertain, we can understand more about how well each model that we're using is calibrated to reflect reality. So that was one of the pieces that was discussed in the, uh, the presser on Friday for BC, is that there was, some, there was considerable decision uncertainty, which is a, another thing, um, about, whether, about which model of the pandemic was, mm -hmm. BC was most going to resemble. Was it going to look like Italy 
where we see huge spikes in disease and just massive crowding of hospitals? Or was it going to be something closer to South Korea, where um, because of extraordinary efforts from the populace and from the government, there was uh, there was an uptick and then a flattened curve, and then things started to uh, recede such that people could go back out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ooh. what they what they said was like, look, if you look at the curves, if you look at what we've seen, um, uh, this particular part of the outbreak in BC looks much more like South Korea than it does like Italy, which is great news for us because Italy was like kind of the worst case scenario. I was cheering on my couch watching that part. (laughs) But that's, I think that's sort of the, that is the value of of a model is that it gives you some ability to predict, but in the very early stages, it's sort of like trying to guess the, the flight path of a baseball. The farther away from the pitcher's arm that it gets, the more information you have about where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But it could be a slider, it could be a curveball, it could be all sorts of things. And the closer to the pitcher's hand it is, the less you know about where that ball is going to go. Yeah. To me, it re- really reminds me of poker. Like, that's that's what, what I'm pulling out of this, because poker's the... Rob and I are both Texas Hold'em players. And when you start playing a Texas Hold'em game, you have very little information. All you know about is your two cards. And then as the game progresses, you get more and more, and you can become slightly more certain where you stand. But you can almost never be completely certain uh, because you don't know what all the other variables are. You're trying to read another person so that you can guess what they've got and then compare it to what you've got and what you hope you can get. And all of those all of those multiple variables like floating around all over the place feels like pretty much exactly what we're doing here. Um, it also reminds me of the latest XKCD, which is talking about garbage math, which talked about exactly what you said. Uh, precise number plus pre- precise number equals sli- slightly less precise number. Um, he's got a whole bunch of them there. Go to the latest XKCD. Uh, and I, I can't help but think that his was brought on by basically what we're talking about here, trying to get that across to people anyway. So I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about what my sort of area of expertise is and how this, I think, most closely relates to what's currently going on, um, which is that at some point we are going to be called to make decisions, policy decisions about what we what we are going to do. And one of those trade-offs that we're going to have to make is part of a, a pretty ugly and often just baffling set of conversations about how many how many people are we willing to let die in order for the economy to get restarted now in very in a very sort of crude sense that is a that is a a morally garbage question which is the scientific term for it um but the economy does not exist merely as a scoreboard on the wall the economy is a measure of the economic activity and economic activity drives other things including for example how much we can afford to spend on healthcare and so at some point there is there is a an inflection point where we have depressed economic activity to enough of a degree that we start to actually see more of a decline in overall health in the population than we would than if we had just allowed people to die. Now, this is not the kind of trade-off that anybody is comfortable making. Well, I shouldn't say anybody. That's probably not true. But um, <laughs> nobody, nobody true. who we have to worry about in the short term is going to be making that kind of trade-off. But there is there is a, a sort of an in and out a trade-off question. And uh, what health economists do, one of the things that we do is we try to use different 
measures to describe the, the value of a person's health. Uh, and so we use measures like disability adjusted life year or quality adjusted life year to try to approximate how much uh, health benefit some policy or some change in, in treatment is going to produce. Uh, and so there are now, like health, health economics has kind of been largely irrelevant up until now, which is lucky for me, because uh, it means I don't have to work that hard. But um, there, are, there are now starting to be questions. Now that we have more information about how this is going to go, there becomes a real question of what is an acceptable level of morbidity? What is an acceptable level of mortality? And what are the costs of keeping everyone in their homes long term? There are, there are definitely health disadvantages to being kept in your home too, particularly if you're living in a domestic abuse situation. If you cannot, if you do not have the ability to get the necessities of life, if you're a person who's on dialysis, being at home long term, not really an option. And so I, there are home dialysis machines, but you, you take my point. Um, and so we end up in this weird place where we have to say, like, we have to literally put a dollar value on human life. And that's when you want some cold, bloodless, shiftless bureaucrat like myself in the room, because we are the ones who are equipped to try and at least give, give <laughs> answers to those questions. We don't answer the question. That's not what science is about. Science is about providing answers. Someone is going to make a policy decision, and I mean, to the benefit of us all, health economists are not the ones in charge of those decisions. So you're saying you don't work on death panels? <laughs> I am. I would. I am what you would might describe as death panel adjacent. Right. You're the advisor to the death, yeah. <laughs> whispering yeah. in the ear. Let this one yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. Death panel adjacent. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there is a really live question because right now in BC, for instance, they're holding open over 4,000 hospital beds. Our hospitals are running at about 55% capacity when they're usually running at about 103% capacity. So this is cancer patients not getting surgery, uh, hip replacement patients not getting surgeries, knee replacement patients, and so on and so on and so on. And there, I mean, there's a real cost to that at a social yeah. and an individual level. So where is the trade-off? I'm glad I don't have to make that decision either. <laughs> well, and, the, and here's, here is, I mean, in the early days of a pandemic, the focus is 100% on control. And so no intervention is really reckless enough and no cost is too high because what you're doing is avoiding the downstream cost of having mm -hmm. several million people die. And even from a, a very mercenary dollars and cents perspective, people dying is bad. People dying is bad for the economy. So even if that's the only thing that you care about, even if GDP is the only thing that you look at, and I really hope it isn't, if GDP is the only thing you look at, seek professional help. But if GDP is the only thing that you are looking at, dead people are bad. Um, GOP this. I don't think they've got this message. <laughs> um, but GD, GDP is a 
again, it is a it is a trade off. The more people that you have at home, there's a, d- a depression in consumption, there's a depression in economic activity. And again, I want to be very clear: this is not the kind of economist I am. I am not a market economist. I've never taken an econ course in my life. That's not what I do. So I'm just talking like a guy here. Um, but we do make these we do make these trade offs, and health economists do have tools that we can use to sort of look at the broader impact other than just death. However, again, we have these cascading uncertainties because what, how do you measure quality of life? What does quality of life mean? What goes into someone being alive or someone being dead is essentially a binary state, which means that it's really easy to measure. And the further away you get from a really easy, like dead, obvious measure, like, is this person still breathing? Um, the the more uncertainty you introduce and the less information you actually have about how to proceed. So building models is this very complex system of, of trade-offs and, and sort of educated guesses. And you do something called sensitivity analysis where you allow the parameters to vary according to like uh, amounts that you decide. And then you look at the impact that 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 changing uncertainty is going to have on the long-term projections of your model um and this is the kind that's the kind of work that i did for for my thesis but uh this is happening on a on a much bigger scale uh with the stakes being much much higher than whether or not uh, i disappoint my parents and uh so it's you know it's something that people are doing the best that they can but I think what people need to realize when they listen to the interpretations of these models is that we are not, it is not because we are, we are not smart enough and it's not because we aren't trying hard enough. The reason why the models are not really great predictors is because we do not have all of the information that we need. Even the stuff that seems obvious is not. Yeah, I feel like, you know, listening, being in different groups and talking about all these graphs that are coming out, they're always say, oh my God, this is wrong and that is wrong. And it's like, of course they're wrong. They're, they're never going to be 100% correct. Even if, no. even with, you know, if you had as much data as you could possibly could have, they're never going to be 100%. People are expecting that and it drives me bonkers. Yeah. The so, only way to get a model that's perfectly going to predict what's going to happen tomorrow is to wait 24 hours and see what the world does. Yeah. That's your only 100% accurate model. Get on that time machine, well, people, so that we can figure yeah. out what's going to happen. I mean, it was instructive that the the Ministry of Health is holding open 4,000 hospital beds. They may start to unwind somewhat now, but they're just really, the error bars really are that wide. We were just sort of one unlucky super spreader event away from being the next Italy. And not only did we, I think we put in stringent measures very early and we had a really aggressive program starting from late January. But we could have got very unlucky. There could have been a super spreader, say, at the Rugby Sevens, which yeah. happened in uh, in February. Um, and that could have been really, really uh, unfortunate. You know, there were 40,000 people all in one building for a whole weekend cheering rugby players while drinking. Um, we just got lucky. Could have just been, um, uh, well, not well, the case. Think of that BC Dental Conference. Right. Like imagine, if, imagine if that case had been detected Five days later, six days later, and a bunch of dentists had gone back into practice. Yeah. And all of a sudden, 
huge community spread outbreak that wouldn't e- wouldn't be easily traceable back mm-hmm. because not everyone is going to know oh yeah i went to the dentist that day that's a that is a pretty difficult dot set of dots to connect uh which is part of what epidemiologists are are doing is looking at um how how can we what is the relationship between an exposure and an outcome and how can we understand how can we best characterize and understand um that exposure i was looking uh i've got the i've got the presser here in front of me um from from friday and there's this this really interesting graph that's on uh you know i had it queued up and then i was like oh no i'll remember where it is <laughs> it's on slide TV, on, baby yeah right it's on it's on slide nine and i'm not sure if that's something that i can share uh yeah, i might be able to, able to yeah to yeah give me the link them. Uh, uh, send it to me on on Facebook so I don't. No, have I've, to... I've, I've 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 got it here. Okay, Rob. Whenever you say super spreader, hey, I just go. think of the bus. Player popped what? out. Now whenever you say super spreader, I just think of the bus. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Man, so here, I mean, so here here we here we're go here here we are uh, looking at just where like understanding where these sources came from. Is that showing up properly? Yep. Okay, and so you can see these bars in in yellow. These are the these are the ones that you really want to worry about. These are the these. This is the the doomsday scenario. These are these are cases where people are getting sick and no one knows how they're getting sick. It means that they were just out in the world interacting normally as people do, and then getting sick. Mm -hmm. And because you can't trace those to a particular cause, you can't know how many people spread an infection just by going about their ordinary life. But what you can see from this graph, and this is really a testament to the populace of British Columbia. What you can see from this graph is that the, 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 if you look at the area that the yellow occupies, it stays pretty consistent. There's, we have not seen a huge outbreak of community spread. That is the, that is the dangerous scenario. That is what we want to try to avoid at all costs is just things, uh, spreading with no particular uh no particular rhyme or reason that we can understand behind it yeah i was wondering how the numbers were going to go the week after easter weekend and so far it seems like we're still uh, getting lucky that doesn't appear to have been a significant um it's i mean it's a combination it's definitely there's a, a a great deal of luck but there's also a great deal of public policy that went into this and a lot of mm-hmm. voluntary human behavior to protect our neighbors and our friends and to make big sacrifices, to make our own personal trade-offs between our comfort and the safety of those around us. And mm-hmm. I think Dr. Henry and uh, the, the rest of the public health apparatus have, have done a good job and struck a right balance in, in giving us some credit um, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, lives in Greece, and he says that their government has just taken to shaming everyone who breaks quarantine for whatever perceived reason. They're digging up old photographs of people at the beach from years ago to then say, look at all these people not social distancing and just making people feel terrible. And he says that it's, yeah, that morale is really, really, really low. And people mm. aren't, he doesn't know how long people are going to be willing to to put up with just basically wow. getting shit on for doing the right thing. Whereas here in BC, it's been, we are in this together, we're going to get through this together, and it's because we are working together. And I think that's a much, 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 that in itself is a public health intervention. 
Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, and and what what is uh, what is Dr. Henry you know always emphasizing that she wants you know she could order this and she could order that, but really she wants people to just be the responsible adults they are. And my God, we're being that. The the data appears to be bearing that out. Now I don't know that I I have my own personal. <laughs> feelings about this, but I don't know if it's fair. I don't have any evidence to back up whether or not people in BC are in fact more reasonable than people in Ontario. But what's happening right now is there's a bunch of very- Well, we're more good looking. (laughs) I mean, obviously, I wasn't gonna say anything, but come on, have you seen those guys? Um, But there there is a really interesting set of natural experiments where the federal government response is identical across provinces, but there are gonna be slight differences in the geography and the the demographic distributions of different provinces, but also the policy decisions that they made and how and when they made them. And a lot of people are praising the Ford government right now, but they weren't doing that a few weeks ago when the Ford government was really collect like shitting its collective bed in terms of the response. And I think that you can attribute quite a uh, a lot of the disparity um, in terms of the outcomes and what it looks like and what the forecast for Ontario looks like. Versus what the forecast for BC looks like. Mm. A lot of that comes down to just policy changes and policy decisions that were made very, very early in the process. And being overly cautious ended up possibly saving thousands of lives. Yeah, I was really surprised on Friday to discover that there's an Oxford stringency scale. And BC jumped at to, to 75 on the Oxford stringency scale on March the 12th when we only had 53 confirmed cases. And I think that in itself played a huge role in how things have turned out. I am unsurprised that the UK has invented a stringency scale. (laughs) (laughs) The least surprising thing I've heard all day. So uh, I'd like to uh, switch gears at this point, because you're not just a health economist. You're also a a musician uh, and host of a local live um, uh, mic uh, and you've taken to carrying on with uh, online live stream. Um, and I'd like you to maybe talk about uh, Locals Lounge. And, and Torin, our in-house uh, musician and bands, will, uh, will, will grab the stick here. Well, I don't know. Whoa, you whoa, whoa. All right, you beat me to the punch. <laughs> so what is Locals Lounge? Uh Locals Lounge is a live music and interview series. Uh, The idea being to introduce people to the human side of the local music scene. I have been incredibly fortunate uh, in my time in Vancouver. A lot of people think of Vancouver or have experienced Vancouver as kind of an unfriendly place where it's difficult to make social contacts, it's difficult to join social networks and people feel sort of like frozen and isolated. And that's been the opposite of my experience because I've been able to hang out with other musicians and you just, you know, you go to their shows and you just kind of fall into a friendship, collegial friendship with people. But don't you all just dance in one spot and not talk to each other? I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't dance in one spot. I dance in <laughs> no spots. But that's a, that's a separate issue. Um, and so my, my hope was, when I started this back in 2016, was to give just ordinary people, whether they're musicians or not, the opportunity to have the same kind of experience and the same kind of access that I've been able to have as a musician. Just throw the doors open, because a lot of the musicians I know are also just really interesting people. 
Um, and so this was a, it started as a way of just kind of get to know some of the people who I know, meet my friends, aren't they cool? They have CDs. Um, and over time, it sort of turned into a, a broader project, um, just trying to build social connectivity around live music. Um, and when the venues started getting capped and we started seeing no gatherings over 250, no gatherings over 50 people, once that started sliding, um, myself and a number of other people uh, who work in this area recognized pretty quickly that this was going to be a massive body blow to the entire arts and culture economy um, and the just the, the lived experience of everyone who works anywhere around the live music industry. Add to that the fact that a lot of musicians pay for their guitar gear habit by getting jobs at restaurants, right. which are also getting shut down. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much everyone I know has just lost their job. And so what Locals Lounge has been doing over the past month uh, and a bit is trying to move as much of the live music industry online as we can to keep live music and to keep social connection around live music, something that is still possible. Because one of the effects of social distancing is social isolation. Um, being isolated is not a good thing for humans. That's not how we evolved. It's not how we're supposed to be as a, as a species. It, different individuals respond to isolation in different ways. But beyond that, there's social isolation is also one of those like necessary but not sufficient factor for hate group recruitment. Right, yes. Um, as a black man, I'm not going to lie. I'm not like jazzed about the idea of a bunch of people locked up in their homes with nothing to do but go on YouTube. Yeah. That is that is kind of a a, a pandemic of its own. <laughs> and there's a lot of toxicity. Probably spreads fairly similarly in, in that yes. petri dish. It is not it's not a great thing that's happening right now even above and beyond what's happening in terms of the medical care system. What's happening to us as a species, as a society, we were, it's not like we had low levels of social isolation before. It was already an, an epidemic. And then we just stacked a whole global plague on top of it right. and forced people into their homes. And so having places to gather and be around other people and to interact with other folks and to feel less alone to share experiences, to share your thoughts, to share your feelings. Um, that kind of stuff is also necessary public health infrastructure that the healthcare system is just, it's just not equipped to provide. That's not what it does. That's not what the public healthcare system is for. But there isn't anyone, there's no community care system that doesn't exist. That's not a minute, there's no ministry of friends. So how are you uh, implementing this practically? There are, we've, so we've started uh, three different shows, two of which are on Twitch. Um, we have something that we're calling the pregame. Uh, the idea behind this is just to have, a, have local musicians on and uh, I interview them. We talk about just like what's going on. Um, and this is done on Twitch. So we're, we're, we're responding what's going on in the, in the chat. Um, and then at the end of the interview, they go and do a live concert. And the idea here is you get a chance to meet 
them as people and get a bit more of a context behind their music. So when you're watching, it has more of a meaning. But also you get to hang out with other people while you're watching this show and people who are tuning in regularly are building friends or building social connections uh, through just repeat exposure to a social environment. Um, another show that we're doing uh, is on a, it's on a Friday night, which is just it's just like a regular kind of a gig thing where I play some music. I have some friends come in and they play some music and then people are just kind of hanging out, doing their thing in the chat. And because not everyone responds great to a, a, a chat environment, a text based environment, we're also doing uh, a series through uh, a, a company called Side Door, which is run by a Vancouver musician called Dan Mangan, where we are and we've teamed up with a group called Creative Mornings. Creative Mornings is a, is a breakfast time lecture and conversation series. And we are doing is something that that's on Twitch. Um, no, this one. So Creative Mornings is, a, is an in-person thing. They are, they are to the creative community what Locals Lounge is to the music community, except they're in 220 cities around the world. And mm. we're barely in this one. Um, <laughs> and we have taken the Creative Mornings format and the Locals Lounge format and mashed them into something that we're calling Creative Lounge because even though creative is in the title, it is not in the people responsible for the show. Uh, and we are taking, um, we're using music and storytelling um, as a way of bringing people together. And then this is happening on Zoom and Zoom allows you to break people down into small conversation groups, kind of like this one that we've got going on. Uh, so you can just kind of hang out with some people. So we invite musicians to come and talk about something that is interesting to them, something that they think is important. Um, and then we ask the audience to respond to some discussion prompt and they have a chance to talk to each other. Uh, we have some guests come in. It's a two hours of like more fun and asking for less money than church. Oh, that sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. And what has, been, what has been the response? We, I mean, we've seen, we're having a lot of fun doing this. So that's, that's for me, that's, that's sure. that part's positive. Um, the, there has been a huge flood of people broadcasting live music virtually. And that's been, that's been great, but broadcast is not an interactive medium. Yeah. Um, we are a small independent group with a budget of, of less than $10,000 that we were lucky to have in the first place, um, trying to sort of move the mountain. Um, and so it's been, it's been a slow start. Well, a, a, a fast start, but a slow rise. Um, but we're, we are expecting to see uh, a lot of growth from this as, as we get sort of the word out a bit more and as people sort of get to see and experience what it is like to be in this environment with other people um we're hoping that by drawing in groups and musicians from all different corners of vancouver's cultural community so not just the people who i know personally right but from like from from different ethnic and, and national communities from different age strata from different you know demographic groups and just to be like we're going to try to represent all of vancouver um it's my hope that we're going to create a place where all of vancouver can just be and feels welcome and feels included because that's the thing that's that's the thing that i'm most worried about is the people who are going to get pushed into the market um they're the ones especially the ones who are not necessarily going to jump up and say i want to be so um those we need to be thinking about those people and those people are who are at the top of my mind 
Um, especially if they got a, if they got an instrument in their hands. So if I want to um, talk to a bunch of theremin players, how do we how do we make that happen? Uh, you, you're asking the wrong person because I would never recommend putting more than one theremin player in touch with each other. That invites <laughs> the, 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 the terrifying specter of a theremin symphony, and I don't <laughs> think humanity is ready for that. <laughs> but you can sense. you can find us on Instagram at Locals Lounge, uh, Locals Lounge Vancouver on Facebook. We do have a website, localslounge.ca, that we're working on getting changed over to it's 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 reflects how what the show used to be. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's a it, it it is it's really based on on just some a, a very simple idea, which is that human beings are at our best when we are doing things together, and nothing brings people together more effectively than music. That's cool. And you and this, so this is year four for you. It, we will celebrate our fourth anniversary in September. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and I think is there anything else we want to talk about before we ask for a song? Do we have any questions from the chat that we want to address? Any questions from from chat? There is a question. Is there more than one good theremin player? (laughs) And the answer is, I hope I never find out. (laughs) We've got a call here for theremin violence. (laughs) All right. Quiet night in the chat. Uh, You've got some music for us. Yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can throw in a, a song. Absolutely, um, spilled over into viral transmission. I'm gonna, uh, yeah, I'm gonna need a, I'm gonna need a second to just uh, to do the switch over here. Sure. Yeah. Uh, while, while you switch, while you switch to, to, uh, there he goes. It's happening. <laughs> you switch. It's happening. It's fine. The switch is happening. Yeah. <laughs> So okay. what have we got for good news tonight? I mean, the 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 performance obviously is the best thing. What you got for us, Taran? Uh, well, I was um, looking at some, at something that was on CBC today, which is about many farmers markets in BCs are ramping up for their spring seasons, but COVID nineteen has forced them to make changes on how they operate, limiting the number of vendors and customers coming to the market. Offering curbside pickup, putting physical, putting up physical distancing signs, uh, similar to grocery stores. Um, in Kamloops, they've closed off all entrances except for one, so organizers can count people as they come and go, only allowing 50 in the market at one time. There's no playground. There's no buskers. Uh, there's no dogs. Uh, the manager will be walking around encouraging people not to stop to chat, so there's like some oversight there. And they're limiting the number of vendors to food only because it's essential. And I guess the, you know, the candles are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious, kind of like, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Is this any different than like just going to the grocery store to get your, your essential needs? Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting, something that I thought was interesting. I expect it's better than business as usual, but not as good as don't do that. Right. Yeah, I guess we'll maybe we'll find out because I know in Vancouver said they're still working on how to do it like Vernon and Kamloops. So I guess have, have they, they figured it out. But but um, for Vancouver, it's um, they're still trying to figure it out. So it's, I guess we'll find out. It's been really impressive seeing how I mean, about the only place I go to still is my local grocery store and I don't have a car. So I have to go get 
you know, a small amount of groceries and come back. And I've gone a few times. Uh, my local uh, superstore is what it's called. The Real Canadian Superstore is the giant grocery chain near me. Uh, they have social distancing stickers on the floor everywhere. Uh, they've now set it up so all of their checkout aisles are fed in with the same lineup. And that lineup has stickers and they have people enforcing that social distancing. So that yeah. like, it's really been interesting seeing how businesses have adapted and are doing the right thing, especially for uh, these vital things like groceries. All right, I think Ian's ready to go. Yeah, it looks like it. We can we can keep talking about groceries. It's I'm I'm just filling air. It's everybody else is having the same experience I expect, and they're just going, your, "Yes, Joe, that thing you're talking about is what I'm experiencing." Thanks for the non-expert input. Your mic volume, your mic volume's a little low, Doctor Crom. Oh, I can turn it up. Yeah, let's get you a little louder. Although it is difference between talking and singing as you'll as you'll oh, soon fair, see. Oh, fair, yeah. Yes. Okay, well, uh, but yeah, you can just give me a an up or a down, and I, I've got I'll, yeah, the I'll I'll give you the up down, and mine will be cool. about volume, not goodness. <laughs> How's that? Cool. Uh, so this is a song I've been playing a lot recently. It's a song that um, it's by Tears for Fears, um, and it's a song that I think speaks really inadvertently or unintentionally to what's happening right now um, insofar as we do really need to be working together. We really are relying on each other um, far more than usual. Uh, and the more togetherness and the, the more uh, unanimity we can show, the faster and the easier we're going to get through this. Uh, and so this song is for anyone living through the COVID area. There is freedom within, there is freedom without. Try to catch the delusion of paper cups. There's a battle ahead, many battles are lost, but you never see the end of the road if you're traveling with me. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Hey now, hey now, when the world comes in, they come, they come to put a wall between us. Don't ever let them win. Now I'm driving my car. There's a hole in the roof. My possessions are causing me suspicion, but there's no proof. In the paper today, tales of war and of waste, but you turn it right over to the TV page. Hey, now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Hey now, hey now, when the world comes in, they come, they come to put a wall between us. Don't ever let them win. Now I'm marching ahead to the beat of a drum. Counting the steps up the door to your heart. Only shadows are here. 
barely touching the room. Get to know the feeling of inspiration and belief. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Hey now, hey now, when the world comes in, they come, they come to put a wall between us. Don't ever let them win. again on viral transmissions crowded house though that's the kind of house we don't want during the pandemic true. i said it was for fears. It's very much not fears for fears it is crowded house and that yeah. adds a layer of irony that i hadn't considered before <laughs> uh, the best that uh, 1986 had to offer i don't know if they were the best I I like Crowded House. I, I've seen better I, than the original I, song. I saw them on tour during the tour for for that album. Uh, Chalk Circle opened up for them. If anybody remembers Chalk Circle, the Canadian band, do not uh, did that cover of 20th Century Boy that got kind of famous in Canada. Anyway, doesn't matter. Oh yeah, CanCon famous or famous famous? CanCon famous. Yeah yeah yeah. Right. Like played on Much Music famous. Oh, I know those guys. We're going to have to explain to our American audience what CanCon is. Or, That's or as not. famous as you get in Canada, kind is CanCon famous. Kind of is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Rush. <laughs> That's about it. I mean, Billie Eilish is Canadian, but she kind of just she? went... She's from Vancouver, but she just basically went... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. 
but she oh, just kind of went okay. America famous, like internet America famous, and didn't do the whole Canadian thing. Well, that is the new path, right? YouTube famous. Yeah. Which can happen for What kind of uh, device slash software you have that you can do the multiple tracks, uh, you know, as you're going along? Uh, that is actually not software. It's, it's, well, it's firmware built into hardware. It's a, just a, 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 a digital pedal that allows oh, me to run right. the instruments through with the different effects and everything. Um, yeah. Cool. It's fun. I like it. I dig it. It was super. Yeah, I think that was the thing that ma- everybody was enjoying it. And then you switched over to the viola and everybody went, ooh. <laughs> They're like, ooh, neat. <laughs> it was moving. It was really moving. Yeah, it was oh, great. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Uh, anything else we want to cover, boys? Nothing? Uh, I noticed uh, I was looking at while well, I was looking for my good news segment. I saw that um, I was in Japan in November and I went to visit the deer park in Nara. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with that, but now the deer, the deer were very tame and very aggressive because you go there to buy, you go there, you buy little crackers, you feed them. Mm. As soon as you go to the booth, where you buy the crackers, the deers just start swarming you immediately. Mm-hmm. And they got up in my face and they're like biting my sleeves and <laughs> stuff like that. But uh, I was looking for like some of the um, reports that, oh, the animals are taking over the cities. And they're all kind of like, yeah, there's some boars here and there's some like, well, you know, uh, there's, there's mountain lions here. But they're all like, there's this one instance that may or may not be really related to you know, what's happening with social distancing and stuff like, but I'm sure, you know, probably generally it is, but I just, it just, I just thought it was interesting that the deer in Nara are now using the crosswalks right in the downtown area of Nara <laughs> there because before they were just kind of like in a park you go to, but I guess with less people, they're just like, oh, they're all over the place now. So that's fun. <laughs> I don't know that getting mauled, mauled by a deer for saltines seems like something <laughs> that like, it's like a, a weird LSD-fueled bingo square or or perhaps the result of, like, a LSD-fueled game of... Um, what the heck is that thing where you have the blanks and you have to fill it in with random words? Oh, Mad Libs? No. no. Mad Libs, yes. Mad Libs. <laughs> Mad, mauled to death by a deer for a saltine is right. 100% a Mad Libs answer. <laughs> It's even more interesting because they uh, the way you're supposed to do it is you get the you have the crackers and you bow to the uh, deer and then they bow back to you. They their head goes down and up and that's when you give them the cracker. And then when you don't have any crackers, you just show them your hands and they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm done with you." (laughs) So it's a very magical time. Ah, that's great. I'm sure that mauled to mauled to death by a deer for crackers is on somebody's list of fetishes somewhere. Yeah, this is one thing I've learned. Yeah, rule thirty-four. My bad. No, no, thirty-five is when there's animals involved. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, women in very in stiletto heels killing deer with their there you go. (laughs) Yeah, crush fetish. I'll pass. (laughs) This this really took a turn. I I went away to play a nice song. And I come back and we're talking about deer crushing fetishes. This is what happens when the experts are done with their expertise and the two caustic soda hosts are talking about shit. It just gets gross and weird and dumb. Yeah. This is this yeah. is one, 
This is our expertise, so there, Ian. I do have I do have something relevant oh, okay. to add to just throw in at the end, which is a plug uh, for another person who I think uh, you should have on the show, uh, who's Dr. Stephanie Harvard, uh, another UBC grad. Uh, she works in the philosophy of science approach to model building. And she's working with a number of other um, academics uh, who are associated with UBC and SFU um, as part of the BC support unit. One of the things that we know about decision-making and health economics is they don't tend to involve, or they don't tend to center patient experiences and value patient input. Uh, we make decisions about endpoints from clinical trials, but the endpoints from a clinical trial is not necessarily what the patients care most about. And so what Dr. Harvard is doing right now is, is looking at ways of bridging the gaps in public understanding uh, between models and the people who are the recipients of the, <laughs> of the impact of the policies that's shaped by the model mm -hmm. and try to bring those two sides closer together. One of the things that we've seen a lot in the past few weeks is people all of a sudden being very, very highly exposed to decision modeling. And the implications that it has, and just like we discussed today, you know, there's there's a lot of information that is not necessarily obvious. Um, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of uh, sort of eggheadedness that that can happen. And uh, Dr. Harvard is and her team are working very specifically on solving that problem. So, in terms of the sort of meta conversation about what should we understand about a model, how should we understand a model, how do they get built, what are they for, what what assumptions go into them. She'd be a great person to have on the show. Please introduce me to her. I'd be more than, okay. more than happy to mm -hmm. put her on the list. Yeah, we'll get in touch. We want to we talk about this issue from as many perspectives as, as possible. Hers would be a really good one. She, mm -hmm. she's, a, she's very sharp. Because without the experts, right. it's me and Torin again, and you don't want that. <laughs> but we want some of that. I mean, yeah, a little. A little bit. Sprinkled uh, in. I, I will be announcing... Uh, I announced this, we, we briefly mentioned this in order to try and keep the fun going. We're going to do some, I'm going to stream some Jackbox games after we're done here. Uh, I think we're going to take a real quick break. Uh, we'll start about 8.30, but I'm going to, we'll cut this, the stream down. I'm hoping that Rob and Torin and maybe Ian will stick around. I'm going to stream it uh, in one of the voice channels on my Discord server. I'll throw a Discord invite up uh, in the channel that everybody watching can jump onto there. Uh, I got to do it after this is done because... This whole video window is my Discord window, and if I stop it to get stuff, it'll anyway. We'll, I'll do it eventually. Uh, so stick around 8:30 for uh, some Jackbox games, which is streamed games. You watch the stream, you play in your phone. There's no apps required. It's super fun. My thing. My incompetence. Uh, it's not that kind of game. It's about being like kind of clever and funny or trivia answering. So I think I suspect you will do well. Let's find out in 30 short minutes. Let's find out. All right. Uh, so I guess that's the show. Thanks for watching, everybody. Uh, Thank you, Ian, for I'll joining us. Throw up My that, pleasure. Stick around in chat uh, if you want to play. I'll throw up the uh, Discord server invite, and we'll go in there. We'll start at about 8.30. And uh, thanks again, everybody. Thank you so much for coming, Ian. Uh, it was great. The info was great. The song was great. Uh, I, I love that song, too. You know I'm a fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Kick it to a new level tonight. Yeah. I, <laughs> Thanks I, very much, guys. I only wish it was a stream to decent quality, but uh, my poor little potato. Well, it here. will be every Friday night on the Locals Lounge Twitch channel. Oh. All right. And with that, we'll see y'all later.